Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for, and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Maya Payne Smart is a writer, parent educator, and literacy advocate who has served on the boards of numerous library and literacy organizations. She and her family live in Milwaukee, where she serves as affiliated faculty in educational policy and leadership in the College of Education at Marquette University. Her website, mayasmart.com, provides tips and tools for parents to nurture, teach, and advocate for kids on the road to reading. Here is my conversation with Maya. Hi, Maya. Thanks for being here with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Okay, so let's start. I told you right before we started recording, but I listened to half of this, and I also read some of it, and the audiobook is excellent. You narrated it yourself, and I was so impressed. Yes, the novice narrator. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience to was it? record it. Okay. It really was. They had scheduled X number of days to do it, and we ended up finishing early. And I thought, well, if the person who wrote a book about reading can't read their own book, we're in trouble. <laughs> so it went very well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Was there anything that surprised you about the process that you didn't know? The Just sort of the setup. So yes. I was in a booth with all this padding and stuff to make the sounds yeah. better for the listener. And so I was alone and I just had a tablet on a music stand and I'm scrolling through just the pages of my book. And then the engineer, I could see through a window. And then the director was actually in another state. So I could only hear this kind of disembodied voice in my ear. Oh my gosh. <laughs> telling me to pronounce the name or something differently because names, you sort of pronounce them in your own mind when you're writing and reading however you want. Yes. yes. <laughs> so there's someone who checks to make sure you're pronouncing people's names correctly, which is a very helpful service. Oh my gosh, that is a helpful service. I have to look up so many names sometimes and I'm scouring the internet like, how do I say this person's name? Yeah. Well, shoot, someone in the ear. That's perfect. Oh, I'm <laughs> glad it was a good process because you did an excellent job. And something I want to mention right at the start. So, well, we're talking about reading for our lives and we'll of course have all that, but I liked the audiobook because I think that this book really does lend itself to a listening experience. And that surprised me a little bit because I thought maybe it was going to be more statistic heavy or something like that. But the tone of your book, it's it's just perfect. It's so well written, both in print and in audio, and I loved it. So you did an excellent job with that. 
Thank you so much. As I wrote, I definitely wanted it to have a conversational tone. And so the audiobook gave me the opportunity to express it the way I wanted people to hear yes. it because the science is really dense and complicated, but the things parents have to do are really simple. And it's in so some true. cases, when it comes to letter sounds or some of the little scripts I give parents for teaching certain things with kids, it, it helps to hear that even differently than reading it. It really does. I loved it. I thought what was so interesting about this is that, you know, I pick it up, start listening to it. And I'm, of course, I couldn't agree with you more that reading is so foundational and it's a gift we give to our children as part of the ways we love and nourish them. And, but what I loved is my boys are 13 and 15 and I'm reading this and I was like, there is still a lot to learn here which was so surprising to me and such a delight. So I would recommend this to such a wide range of people because I think educators can benefit from it. Definitely people who have young kids. And I even thought this is the type of book I would give to someone who was going to have a baby. Whereas normally a reference book would be like the worst baby shower gift ever, <laughs> right? Like they'd be like, well, you're not invited again. Right. But if you think about it, expecting parents have so much more time and energy (laughs) to get into this than when you have that bundle of joy in your arms and you're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? And you know, your, your sleep is deprived in those early days. So I think, I think that's a great idea you have. It's a good baby shower. I would a hundred percent put it in anyone's hand. And I think my favorite thing about the book, and we can start here, is that everything in here is so achievable. And it's realistic and it's encouraging. I mean, you read it and I think there's so many, being a parent is so overwhelming right now. And so for people to read something that's, oh, I can do that, you know, and I think it starts even with the conversation part. So maybe we can start there. Just talking about all the research around talking to your kids and how that's foundational and how we all think we do it more than we do. Absolutely. So one of the big surprises for me when I dug into the research about this, understanding how the road to reading unfolds, is that language development is so important for literacy development. And when you hear it, it makes sense, but that's not the way we think of it. We often think of raising a reader in terms of sitting with them with a book, even yes. when they're they're itty bitty. But what I discovered was that it's really, particularly with infants and toddlers, these back and forth exchanges that you're having in conversations really build their brain structure and function. That's how they're learning and making sense of the world. So and also the I think the nuance I didn't get as a new parent was I knew to talk to my daughter and people would say, oh, narrate everything. Tell her about the trees and the flowers and the things in the grocery aisles. But what I discovered was it was also the listening to her even before she could speak in words and understanding that her coos and babbles were a part of this duet or exchange and that her attempts at communication were really powerful and brain building. Yes. And you did a really good job of expressing that like we were talking about in the audiobook listening to that script, right? Where they coo at you and you say, oh, I agree. Tell me more about that. You know, and these (laughs) ideas or imitating their sounds. I mean, and some of that I did naturally as a parent, but it was funny. I was listening to it and I thought, okay, so I did some of that and some of it never would have occurred to me. And I was, you know, pretty attuned that way. So that's another thing that I love about this book is it's a way you can just build your skill set. And we all sort of assume that it's intuitive, but it's not. Absolutely. And I think it makes parents more informed as their child approaches school age and you start to see more of the formal 
reading instruction. Most of what I present in this book, these are things you can do with or without a book in hand. You don't need a worksheet. It's not a really rigid curriculum, but it's about seizing everyday opportunities to teach vocabulary or teach the sounds within words or teach letters. And so I think parents, once you have that experience of doing it day in and day out, it really makes you a sharper observer of things you'll see in classrooms. Yes, that makes total sense. I really liked the joy in this book too. I mean, I was listening to it and I was thinking, oh, that is such a fun part of, because I remember that watching the boys learn to talk and read is just, it is like watching magic when they catch something or they understand. And it's such a gift. And I think you really captured that here, that this can be, this isn't like, hey, here are all the ways you're failing on reading. (laughs) And I detailed them for you. (laughs) It's it's so, it's just so holistic. And it says, this is another way that you can connect with your child. And P.S., it's going to be great for both of you. And it's not going to be hard. Right. It's going to be strengthening your relationship and giving you just more to talk about (laughs) and all those shared experiences and shared stories for years to come. And what I discovered, what was comforting for me as a mom, a lot of this stuff I discovered after I felt like it was too late to implement with my child. So I would read a study about if you do this thing, have more conversational turns with your 18 to 24 month old, they'll have a higher IQ in yeah. middle school. Well, my daughter's about to go to middle school. So well, I guess that <laughs> may or may not have. <laughs> <laughs> but what you learn is at every age and stage, there's value to conversation, listening, turn taking <laughs> and all yes. of those things. So a lot of the tips really do age well. They absolutely do. I mean, truly, I was thinking about the thing that stood out to me, at least for my kids, older, and neither of them, when that you brought up the statistic about the number of kids that said they don't read for pleasure and how that had increased, I was like, oh my gosh, my kids are in that. (laughs) And they will, but you know, it's all those things. But I think the thing that I loved was thinking about the conversation and basically that we overestimate how much we talk to them, truly like you're talking about conversation, turn-taking and, and listening. So that was a good reminder, even as a parent of teenagers, like don't, don't let that time pass me by. Right. And just to have that awareness of what you're saying when you're speaking to your child, because as I get older, a lot of it is directional. Absolutely. Pick up your soccer stuff. Oh, Stop doing yes. that. Do this, do that. And it's just, we're trying to get through the day and there are a lot of things going on. And But if we can have at least some mindful moments when we're intentionally taking those turns, however old they are, it it is more fun for everyone involved. I hope that is a lesson of the book as well. A hundred percent, even with your salty teenagers, people. I mean, just just get in there, ask them a question. But it is true. And I think that's true for all relationships, right? Even in, I know that sometimes, even with my husband and I'm like, have we talked today? I mean, it's mostly just logistics all the time because we live Absolutely. in crazy times. Yeah. And what you were saying about reading interest, we definitely, when I was a kid, there, there was less competition for reading. We didn't yes. have devices and smartphones and all of these oh. ways of communicating. But when I'm being honest about what I read as a kid, it wasn't like I was reading long, dense, amazing, amazing literature in the way that sure. some of us want our kids. I was reading Fear Street and they had, you know, book after oh, book yeah. after book. That was basically the same R.L. Stein story yes. over and over again that I was reading. But hey, it's reading. It counts. I learned some vocabulary. And at some point I got interested in other things. Absolutely. It's Babysitter's Club, right? (laughs) Claudia and Stacey were having the same problems. 
It's yeah. not Tolstoy. <laughs> yes. No, I love that though. Your your book does a good job of pulling back that pressure. I think the things I I was literally jotting down notes as I was listening to the audiobook. I want to hear more about spaced learning. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think that parents our memories of school and how we navigated school sometimes centered on cramming for a test yeah. or trying to <laughs> trying to digest large volumes of information all at once and so yes. there can be a temptation especially in times when you feel like your attention is fragmented because of work and a pandemic and all these different things like when you have that moment to want to sit and have an intense learning session with your child around a particular topic <laughs> that <Yes>. can happen. <laughs> yes. And I think, wait, attention fragmented can't relate, but <laughs> I hear what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so with space learning, it was really reassuring, I think, and good encouraging news for parents is that that's not the most effective way to do it. So you can let yourself off the hook and do some of these a little bit at a time over time. Yes. So I'll talk, I'll give an example of teaching letter shapes or just bringing kids awareness to letter sounds. Those are can be done as simply as saying, oh, look at the S on this stop sign. The letter S says it's shaped like this. It curves this way and that way and tracing it with your finger. And so that is that little sentence or two is a lesson. And if you yes. bring that letter up or another letter up and na- the natural context of your day, that will help the lesson stick more than if you sit down and try to drill the the kid. <laughs> Tie them to the chair. <laughs> you sit here. No, that's a, that's such a good thing to hear though, because you're right. We have, you know, it's kind of that quality time versus quantity time that debate that I think has gone away a little bit more, but that this idea that you can carve out little moments of quality by repetition and, but it doesn't have to be all at once. Right. Takes a lot of that pressure off. I really, that also reminded me when I was because I was in college, I was a Spanish major. And so they had said early on when I was learning that you had to repeat a, a word seven times before you would actually have it sort of coded. You would have to encounter it seven times. But like you're saying, it's not like I could repeat it seven times sitting down and then I've got it. You have to right. see it in different contexts. So that really made sense to me. And you also comforted me a lot because I didn't speak Spanish with my kids when they were young. And I tried, but I couldn't it wasn't my natural language. And I think that was encouraging too, because really our language is so tied to our, our connection and intimacy with them. And so this idea that for parents who don't speak English or are nervous about using their native tongue, they don't need to worry about that. They can actually focus on that. So will you talk a little bit about that too? Yes. I think there's a lot of research to support people playing to their strengths in terms of language interactions with their children. So if you're a fluent Spanish speaker, definitely give that gift of fluent Spanish speech and reading to your child. And then there are other ways for them to learn English sounds and English spelling. And a lot of people feel pressure that if the school is an English speaking or learning environment, that their child is at a disadvantage Mm-hmm. if they aren't um, speaking English at home. But you really want to give your child the richness of your language because what you're teaching is vocabulary yes. and you're going to give them more sophisticated vocabulary and sentence structure and all of those things when you're playing to your strengths. So I think, again, most of everything that's in the book is really good news for parents. <laughs> it really is. It's, it is. It's great. I love also that you used the phrase cooking with grease in your book because I say cooking with gas all the time. 
And I was laughing because I thought, oh, this is great. I love that phrase. Now you're cooking with grease. I really liked that you referenced the oldest student. Will you talk about um, the book, the picture book? Because I read that to our students at my school. And I love it. Will you talk a little bit about Mary Walker or how you encountered that? Yes. So in, I think one thing that sets this book apart from other raised reader books is that it doesn't include a lot of book, picture book recommendations. So I don't tell people exactly what to read at this age and stage or for this situation. I do. To its credit. I like that. It's not overwhelming. It's, this is, yeah, good to follow. Continue. So I wanted, because I wanted parents to understand the concepts and how they could teach with whatever book or resource they happen to have access to. So the books that I picked for the most part were just books that I really liked for some reason. (laughs) And often I'm not mentioning them to say you should read this to your child, but just because it had an interesting story that I thought was relevant to that chapter. But what I loved about The Oldest Student, I think it's a great picture book, beautiful illustrations, and it just tells the story of an elderly woman pursuing this dream of literacy and raising a family, had children pass away and a husband pass away. And she's in a senior center and learns about some reading classes and takes advantage of it. And it says in the concise, beautiful language of a picture book, how she went about obtaining those skills. And it struck me that the same skills that a child from birth to six would need to become a reader were the same things that she had to master at a hundred or however she was. Yes. I love that. It's such an inspiring story and such a reminder that literacy is a gift that we can give to them. And it's something that unlocks all of these other paths. Absolutely. I really liked that. How did you get started? Sorry, I got so excited about all the things to talk to you about that I didn't even start with how you decided to write it. (laughs) So I got curious about this when my daughter was a baby. So I was an avid reader, book lover, named after Maya Angelou, named my daughter after Zora Neale Hurston. I love that you shared that. (laughs) Books books and reading are a big deal and I think a major life enhancer. So I wanted that for her. And I knew to read to her and have lots of books around the house and take her to the library. But I felt like there was more Mm -hmm. that I should know about the what specifically does she need to know and when? I'm a detail person, so it was really just driven by my personality of thinking this thing was super important and then feeling like as a new parent, no one had given me a manual. I felt like that in many respects about parenting, but particularly in reading, this was the one that I was curious enough about to pursue. So read a lot of news articles, read then started reading academic articles and then started interviewing people. My background is in journalism, so took notes, wrote blog posts, and then eventually felt like I had learned enough that I wanted to share it in a more comprehensive package than blog posts can. I really wanted parents to see how the things you do with a baby and toddler affect what's happening with your preschooler and elementary schooler and just kind of trace that path. Mm-hmm. I really think you did a wonderful job of that. And I loved, you know, the parts about babies and toddlers also because it just reminded me of those years. I mean, I still have a very vivid memory of my son, of one of my sons, seeing a street sign and just saying, pointing at it and making noises like he was identifying the letters. And it was the first, I just remember thinking, oh, that's what he's doing. He's thinking and seeing. So that print to the print awareness and all of those pieces that come into it. So I'm with you. I find it so fascinating and how their brains work. The other thing I appreciate about this, though, is that you really give parents a lot of tools for once their kids are in school. 
And I think that's so important because phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, all of these pieces that feel very intimidating, I think you give parents a good roadmap for that. Was that part of your intention in it or did that come as part of the research and thinking, okay, we're moving forward here? I wanted to highlight things that I thought there was a strong research base saying, if you focus on this thing in this way, it'll have an impact. And I feel like phonological awareness, phonemic awareness is some, those are terms parents don't hear. Right. Of course. <laughs> and you're like, what is, what does that even mean? So we're talking about awareness yeah. of sounds within words. Okay. So that cat has three sounds ah, and that you can smush them together to make cat. Or if you hear cat, you can break it apart, segment it into individual sounds. And that's a skill. So much yes. of this are things we don't think are skills, but all of it, there are a thousand and one things kids have to learn even the difference between a letter and a number or a letter and some other drawing on a piece of paper. Every single bit of it yes. <laughs> has to be learned. And so I think it was important to let parents know that sound awareness of sounds within a word is a thing that's important for reading. <laughs> yes. And you can help it along through wordplay and um, nursery rhymes. And I talk about the name game and piglet and, and things that you're doing that are playful with mixing up initial sounds within word. Yes. I really enjoyed those ideas. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I also, what really spoke to me too is the part where you were referencing that emotions create habits. Mm. That <laughs> seems like powerful advice for life. Will you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> So I devoted, ended up devoting two chapters to talk because I felt it came before a lot of the things that we think of as literacy skills that have to do with letters yes. and mapping sounds to print. And I wrote one chapter about talk that just explained the power of those conversational turns and how it builds brains. And then I thought, just from my own experience, well, how do we remind ourselves to do some of these things? And so then there, I added another chapter that was about triggers to get you to do some of these things. Yes. Some people can, some people will just remember to do something if they're in a certain space. Some people will have to write, put a post-it note up or an alert in their phone. Or one great example I heard recently was of someone getting a, a diaper changing pad cover that had nursery rhyme images on it. And that is how she reminded herself to sing nursery rhymes every time she changed a diaper. Yeah. So <laughs> we want to do things. We want to associate, we want to give some power to these habits that are so powerful for our children. And it really is an exercise in self-discovery to figure out what resonates with you 
And so I also have journal prompts at the end of each chapter to try to get people to dig into some of those issues. I think you did a great job with that. And like I said, those are lifelong pieces, right? How do I build opportunities for connection and conversation and reading into our lives, you know, as they age too. I think that's just so powerful. I really also appreciated and we'll be referencing this later to my husband. He feels like a hostage in our house sometimes because the talking level is really high. People have a (laughs) lot of words and there are times where he really is like, please make it stop. And now I'm just going to hand him your book and be like, Oh, (laughs) let me just show you the value. But you, you mentioned that the talkative kids were kind of related to talkative parents, that there is this idea that really just talking to your kids is a basic thing that you can build in. So next time he complains, I'm going to be like, well, you're welcome. (laughs) And that reminds me of another point that we often, and I've read a lot of news articles about disparities in reading yes. achievement and outcomes. And you'll read about, you know, black students on average having lower scores than white students or lower socioeconomic students and higher. And some of that has to do with, for example, if you're a lower socioeconomic home, there may be poverty, there may be stressors, all kinds of issues with like work and yes. all kinds of things could impact your ability to have these conversational turns with your little one. But even among lower socioeconomic families, there is wide variation among the talk level and the number of turns. So Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing for people to be mindful of. Also, there are higher income households where kids aren't getting the language nutrition that they need. And some of it has to do with the parent's disposition. I'm introverted, relatively quiet person. (laughs) Oh, so you want to come live in my house too then? (laughs) It'll be great. (laughs) So I think it's important for parents to know this so they can, in some cases, step out of themselves a bit and talk more than they ordinarily would. Yeah, that really makes sense. You're right. It is easy to make the assumption that 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 there are ways to group that, but it across the board, it sounds like everybody overestimates how much they're having valuable conversation. (laughs) And then also this idea that, you know, you have to be intentional about it because life is going to get in the way, regardless of your life circumstances. They could look like you should have plenty of time, but you might not because you're distracted or stressed or whatever it was. I also really appreciated that you brought up the events in Christchurch, New Zealand, the earthquake there, and how that impacted just seeing or reading about all that was very powerful because it's a reminder, especially right now, post-pandemic, what what are we missing that we need to make up? So are there things you're seeing now that you're starting to have these conversations that really stand out to you that way? Coming out of of COVID, and I say that with a bit of hesitation because it seems like things keep spiking. I know. It's ever going to end. (laughs) But we are starting to see studies of language development among babies, COVID babies, and how they're behind relative to what has been typical for language milestones for kids. Okay. And some of that is, we don't know all of the reasons why, but some of it could be just isolation and, you know, Mm -hmm. stresses that are associated with quarantine and all the things that we've been through. But we know that for whatever reason, many children took part in fewer conversational turns and are scoring lower on language milestones than typical. And that has implications for literacy down the road. So I think we have to 
look at these numbers and not think that anything is the end of the world, but look at the look at it as inspiration to be more proactive and figure out, well, what do we need to help yes. give kids whatever they need at the point that they're at? We can't go back mm-hmm. <laughs> and give them yeah. and give them more words, but starting with meeting them where they're where they are, what do we need to do differently to ensure that every child gets what they need to become a strong reader? Well, and you're exactly right because it is a looming crisis and we see it in education and we see it lots of different places where people need to be able to read. And it's also oddly binary sometimes the way people talk about it. I'm a reader, I'm not, but it's, well, yeah, maybe you don't read for pleasure a ton of books, but you're reading all the time. Like you need those basic skills to, (laughs) to be able to do the things you need to do to live in society. So it's, I think that sort of undergirding of it where this is, I think I liked your introduction, especially just sort of the, the crisis element of this and the way you compared it to the water, that there are other crises that are a lot more visible and easier to, to deal with as a result. But this one's as important, if not more important, because this is the undergirding of everything. I love that you picked up on that because throughout the book, I wanted it to be encouraging to parents and feel like you can do this, you can do these things. But I also wanted to infuse that sense of urgency and everything from the title, like reading for our lives. Like there are studies showing, I think it was 43 million Americans between the ages of 16 and 65 can't read well enough. Like that's a staggering number of people who don't know what they signed on their apartment lease, (laughs) you know, can't navigate a map, can't understand what they're voting on on ballot and all these things. And I also think that the level of sophistication we need in reading is getting higher for all of us. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and especially you mentioned discerning fact from opinion, those sorts of skills that are really nuanced and ever more important. And you brought up in the introduction that some of those lower literacy rates in the U.S. were one in six couldn't read at that level versus one in 20 in Japan. So I think holding it up against another area, too, is a, is a powerful reminder. Like, this is something that has to be addressed. And great news, you don't have to do anything rocket science to address it. <laughs> right? There are always those examples of you'll hear stories of people who had just amazing educational trajectories and became very successful in their chosen careers, but they were from households where a parent, you know, stopped school at third grade or fourth grade or whatever it was, but yes. they were able to give them that foundation because whatever you know as an adult, you know more vocabulary than a baby or an infant. Yes. <laughs> whatever, yes. whatever you know about letters or print or regardless of how long it, it took you <laughs> to learn what you learned, you know more than that, that yes. infant. And so some people do it naturally, the talk and the conversation and the labeling and asking questions. And others of us, like me, you have to read to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> but it does. It's a sense of agency and urgency. I think you give both in this book. Tell me about your day job. My day job is my, I have a background in journalism. So that is sort of what set me down this path. And then I started when my daughter was maybe two or three, I started a kind of a mommy blog where I was just writing about whatever I was interested in at that time. And then over time, as I started delving into this research, I used the blog as a way to share insights into spelling bees or whatever I was interested in at the time, but it got more and more narrowly focused on literacy related things. 
And then once COVID hit, and I did think it would be a book at some point, but toyed around with different concepts, like 101 ways to raise a reader. And then I'm like, no parent wants 101 ways to do anything. Yeah, that makes me sweaty. I I like this title better. (laughs) (laughs) So we abandoned that idea and kind of refined it and uh, reframed it. And then in May, so early COVID, May of 2020, got serious about it, finished the book proposal, got an agent. The agent sold it to Avery and imprint of Penguin Random House. And then I had a deadline, so it had to get done. Mm. <laughs> and here we are. Yay for I'm a very, deadline. I'm very thankful for that deadline. Yeah. So is author your full-time gig now? <laughs> yes. Author is my full-time gig, gig now. I'd say author, speaker, doing some workshops. I'm also um, affiliated faculty in the College of Education at Marquette. So I'm enjoying meeting the educators there and the teachers that they're training and thinking about ways that parents and teachers can work in partnership to get the outcomes that we all want. You did a really good job addressing the tendency toward defensiveness when I think educators, you know, teachers especially, they just have a good eye on these things. And sometimes they can point out maybe holes and sometimes parents don't want to hear that. So I really liked the you know, the need for advocacy, but then also kind of the need for openness. Like if we're all working toward the same goal, then early intervention is key. And the more open you are to what's going to work for your child is just a benefit for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. You covered so much in this book. I feel like I could just go on all day, but I think what I was left with too is its resonance. So for you, author of this book, Who's your ideal reader? Like, who would you love to see pick up this book and implement what's in it? I would love to see parents of infants and toddlers, even expectant parents. But as in, before you have the baby in your hands, you have a a lot of time to think about and digest these issues before you're immersed in diapers and all the things. Yes. Um, But I do, I really want people to think about that span of reading as starting from day one. Okay. And that it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to have a book in hand in order to be doing things that support reading down the road. So I think the ideal reader is anyone that interacts with babies and toddlers. Okay. Perfect. I love it. And I like the idea too, for people that work in childcare, you know, preschool, that's so important and the way that they interact. And I know we have a local organization here that recently invited me to read aloud to their staff of childcare people so that they would have a model of read alouds and then they take it back and talk to their preschoolers. And, you know, I read this book more slowly or I do this. And so there are lots of tools in here that are just like that, where it's, this isn't hard to do, but it is a learned skill. So just taking that intention and then having some some knowledge behind it is so powerful. So So to your point, parents of older children can still benefit. And I also think grandparents, grandparents would make amazing audience for this book as well. Grandparents would be perfect because grandparents aren't as jammed up with the million other things. (laughs) So they're great people for language, right? Plus I don't know many grandparents that don't like a captive audience that doesn't really talk back. Right. Right. I know I'll appreciate that when I have grandchildren. It's going to be great. (laughs) I just wanted to read this brief part in the back in your conclusion. It's impossible to teach your child everything they need to know to thrive in an unpredictable world. But when you focus on reading, you can rest assured that you're building the skill that supports all others. It truly facilitates learning in every other area of life. 
academically and personally, as workers and as citizens, and is the undisputed best tool to help kids meet the demands of adulthood. And it's also a powerful bridge to the best of public life, libraries, schools, and community. I loved, and I feel like that's so, that's such a good representative passage of the book. I mean, I read it and I was smiling like a, just like a nerdy library reader person, but I just thought, (laughs) man, this is so good. I'm going to put it in the hands of so many people because you're right. It's, it's just, it's a great place that we can have an impact on our kids and just have a little more joy with them in it, as opposed to sit down and let me read you this book. And it's going to be miserable for both of us because I'm going to pick a nonfiction text that's way, you know, way too advanced or whatever. So I really appreciated that. The other thing I wanted to mention too, is for older kids, my boys and I read Harry Potter together over COVID and it was such a great experience. And this reading that brought that back too. just that reminder Uh that like, it just can connect us in so many wonderful ways. All those shared stories, I'm looking forward to when my daughter is an adult and she looks back. We've read one of the books we read during COVID was Trevor Noah's book. And I'm like, I'm not sure if this is born a crime. And so that introduced her to all kinds of things. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that was the right pick for her age, but it's memorable. I'm sure she'll never forget some of the things we read in that book. A hundred (laughs) percent. I would think uh, most <laughs> most likely when he talks about his blind grandmother in that book and he's using the restroom, that one really stands out to me personally, so I can only imagine. But that's a great point that no matter what you read, even if it's above their pay grade, a little below, whatever, everything's a jumping off point for conversation. And Absolutely. And it teaches them that you're a person that can handle things too, which I love. That's amazing. I love that. We've, we've had a few of those movies and, you know, certain media where you get in part way and you're like, Oh, this is not for children. Right. And I feel like I was watching all of those things at that age. I don't know if I, I mean, my parents were great, but I'm like, really dirty dancing. Like, was that what I should have been consuming at that age? It's amazing. Oh, the joys of parenting. I love it. Okay. So I have just a couple more questions for you. Number one, what are you reading now? Like you have time to read. You don't because you're launching a book. You're too busy for that. So now I'm kind of revisiting a lot of kind of inspirational books that I'd read in the past because my goals for August with the book launch are like to be present and be grateful. I'm always saying Mm. get a grip. So that's like grateful, receptive, intentional, and present. So I've been reading a lot That's of books amazing. with like that in the title, like Wayne Dyer's the, the Power of Intention. And so like that sort of, I don't know what genre that is, but like be peaceful, either. be present and enjoy, enjoy the moment of your first book launch. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so thrilled for you. And I really think this book is going to be a gift to a lot of people and also it's, it's just such an important, it's an important message and I'm so glad you're telling it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Okay. So now that I've talked in about 16 circles about this book, I mean, I didn't promise this was going to be an organized podcast. So apparently we're just (laughs) all over the map, but do you have a question for me to close us out? I do. So I love librarians. I love libraries. I just think, as you've read in that quote, they just kind of represent the best of public life, that there's this magical place with all these resources that can connect you to everything, anything and everything. And it's 
free for anyone who walks in those doors or accesses their online resources. So my question is, how has librarianship changed since you started? And what do you, how do you anticipate it changing even more like in the next five to 10 years? What's the, what's the future of being a librarian? What's the future? I love it. Let me get out my crystal ball and we'll do a little of that. I love that question. So I work in an elementary library. So mine is somewhat static in some ways, like my small universe, because of the way that I run things. Because at my core, my desire is for them to have good feelings around being around books, that they feel seen and loved and that we have a good time together. And so they're checking out books. But for me in that setting, it's so much about this experience, especially since school can be tricky for some kids. So you come to the library, hey, it's all it's all good here. So that is a gift for me, that sort of consistency. But I do think that from what I see, and this is just my opinion, but from in the public library space, I think we're really going to see over the next few years, hopefully more support for libraries because libraries are becoming so much more of a community hub, I think, than they ever have with access to technology and those needs. So I think, and I've heard this from some librarians where libraries are employing social workers or other staff there that are more equipped to deal with some of the other pieces and support some of the patrons. So I think hopefully we'll see more of that. And I also feel like there's been a real, I feel like libraries move at just the right pace, kind of like the speed of a bike, right? Where you're not, you're not (laughs) zipping by everything. So this idea that things will advance with tech, but really there are still so many analog ways that people interact with books in the library. So those sorts of having more opportunities for that. I know for me, that's something I'm always thinking about. How do we slow things down in here and still make it relevant and accessible. So those two, and I would say the last one is trying to figure out a way to curate resources and to give people more opportunity to understand where the resources have come from, like this, understand the sources and have a little bit more of discernment between what's fact and what's fiction, what presents as fact, but maybe isn't based in reality. So I think helping people have more discernment and hopefully librarians will be able to figure out a way to to make some of that available, even in the way we catalog and sort and perhaps advise on those things. So that would probably be my hope. Very bright future. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Well, it is kind of amazing. When you go into a library, you think this is really an institution that should shouldn't be no longer like a borders books. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) you just, because it does have an anachronistic quality where you just feel that, but that's what's so beautiful and wonderful and just speaks to its import too, because they're still there and you're right. It's the best of public life. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm a glass half full kind of girl. Love it. Well, Maya, thank you so much for this time. I know I've said it about 50 times, but I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and that you took the time to make it so intentional and accessible and also to impress upon people that this is a big deal and that they can be part of that solution, even with 
other kids, I mean, that kind of modeling too, right? Like you have kids at your house, you have play dates, we have things. It doesn't have to be this really intimidating thing that we need to address. So I will be putting this in everyone's baby shower gifts, really, from now until the end of time. Yes, I will be (laughs) recommending it, but I wish you all the luck with the launch and plenty of, what did you say? Gratitude? Receptivity, Receptivity. intention, and presence. Oh, presence. Get a grip. Get a grip. I'm writing that down. That is amazing advice. So thanks so much for your time today. I know it's precious, especially this week, and I will be sharing this with all the people I know. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritewords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book.